I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Hello. We're back. (laughs) And welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Did you, did you. Did you did you miss us? I hope so. <laughs> that'd I hope be so nice. Too. Yeah. yeah, that'd be nice. Um, it, it's the podcast. <laughs> it's historically badass broads. We like to talk about ladies from history that you should have heard about, should have heard anything accurate about. Uh, mm-hmm. any variation of that sentence. Yeah. Um, here to remedy that. We're we're doing our one badass broad at a time. You know. Uh, we're just two mere women, mm. uh, you know, doing doing the absolute best that we can at, at this time, mm. and 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 that's really what it is, you know. <laughs> if we could do seventeen podcast episodes per day, we would, because we, would. Cause we, we would. enjoy it. We do. We're friends. More knowledge. We like talking to each other. <laughs> that's also true. <laughs> why, why does it sound like we're like being held at gunpoint? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we're we're friends. We we're friends. I swear. We talk because <laughs> we don't know how to start a podcast. No, and this is episode, if I'm not wrong, forty seven. Mm. Forty seven openings and closings of an episode, and, and they've all been clusters. For the life of us, we cannot figure it out. We really should write something down. We've said that so many times. I know, we're but if I keep saying it, the intention low is key there. writers like we could. <laughs> We could just take five minutes and sit down and write it. But isn't this more fun? Isn't it more off the cuff? Doesn't it feel truly just about to say that real? <laughs> this is because Aren't we real people. Confirm. We are simpatico, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, the people came here to learn. We came to learn, and this one might make you mad. <laughs> I can't lie to you. <sighs> it fired me up. Here, so I know, me too. Sometimes I feel like a activation occurs and this one does that. And actually I've been meaning to do this one for a long time, but I genuinely couldn't. Oh gosh. It, it's not her life necessarily. It's her, it's the work that she did. And oh. it's, I, I want to, I want to punch a wall. Many, many walls, more than sure. one. Sure. Got to get you to one of those, uh, smashing rooms i know but knowing me i'd somehow hurt myself so i feel like it's probably best if i don't yeah, that's, that's that's actually probably true yeah <laughs> I'd be so the who's first. the lady who's the lady we're gonna talk about rachel carson great do you know what who rachel carson name? is no you've definitely heard feels, like very 2010s to me for some reason that's fair it's not no i'm sure the, the <laughs> judging by the contents of this podcast i'm assuming not 2010 (laughs) no i do have a not so unspoken anymore rule about our uh ladies having to have been passed for 
50 years. 50? Although we have yeah, thus far had one violation. Okay, violation is a strong word. It's it was Virginia exception. Hall, and I think she deserved Fascinating. it. Fascinating. I think so, too. Truly one of my favorite uh, I just realized I was thinking of Rachel Bilson. You know what's weird? They mm. don't not look like each other. Like, not. Oh, not. Interesting. Okay. I might well, have to put together a little graphic. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure it out. Anywho. Um, Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson. She is very well known for writing one of the most influential books of the 20th century. It's called Silent Spring. I read this book in high school. Hmm. Like my freshman year. And like many people, felt real riled up. <laughs> okay. And I couldn't reread it. it. Her writing is exceptional. And I I can't help it, guys. When we have a writer, I'm so happy to be able to read something. I think, I think I've been doing a lot of writers lately because I just love hearing their own words. And we actually have a video of her talking. We have a video. Whoa. Whoa. <gasps> it's amazing. I guess I could have gotten a video of um, Eleanor Roosevelt, but for another it's time. It's never too late. Never, too, never late. too late. No. On my birthday which is also her birthday. Hey, mm-hmm. um, there you go. Got to release a video. We can do like um, anyway, a joint birthday. Yeah. That'd be, I'd be honored. I am honored just to exist in and around her space. Just anyway. to exist. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, no, I have questions. Um, the pause was heavy. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to Springdale, Pennsylvania. Heck yeah. Near Pittsburgh. And sure. on May 27th of 1907, Rachel Carson was born. Congrats. Congrats. Her mom is Maria. Her maiden name is McLean. And her father, mm-hmm. Robert, was an insurance salesperson. He was 50-something and or 40-something, and her mom was 38. So she had two okay. much older siblings. And she was mm. kind of the, like... Miracle baby. Not miracle baby. It was just like, whoa, a baby, you yeah. know. That's me and my family. Oh my gosh, I that's get it. right. Yeah. Eight years. Miracle baby. That's me. <laughs> the miracle. That's what they call me on the streets. The miracle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so her dad was an insurance salesperson. Her mom mm-hmm. was raised in a pretty well-to-do family. Um, and so they had some money, but they weren't they didn't have a massive amount, but they had a 65 acre farm. It was a working farm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she was the apple of her mama's eye. I mean, <laughs> wild. Um, Any ounce of this child that could have been nurtured was nurtured to the extreme. So Rachel started reading pretty young and her mom was like, great, here's every book ever written. Um, She showed Ooh. any interest in writing. Boom. Here's a pen and paper. You want to draw? Mm. Boom. You know, it was every aspect of that. And yeah, it's very cool. Mm -hmm. So by the time, so Rachel, and she loves to wander around the farm. She loves to um, be in nature. That's a huge, huge aspect of her life and will continue to be. She loves stories. Mm -hmm. She loved reading Beatrix Potter and, um, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson and Herman Melville as she got older. Mm -hmm. And it was just a massively avid reader and same girl's name and, um, <laughs> you know, but was deeply involved and impressed and in, like enamored with, with nature and everything surrounding it. So she was 
she would say, I think she, there's a quote of her saying that she was a very solitary child, although she wasn't an only child. Okay. And I found that really yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that just sounds introverted, but. Yes. Yeah, it is. I And she <laughs> proves to be that way. I think she's, she's brilliant. I mean, for the record, she's wildly brilliant. Like, mm-hmm. whoa. And I think it's just, it was just not that interesting to her to engage sometimes. If that makes any sense. Yeah. 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 That does. Mm-hmm. So when People she was probably ten... are not on her level. No, not at all. When she mm-hmm. was 10, she loved to read this um, publication called the St. Nicholas magazine. And it mm-hmm. was, it was edited. Like, I guess there was a section of the magazine where children were given membership and, were published. So they would submit stories and were published in this magazine. So Rachel did that at the age of 10. And not only did she win a prize, but became like one of their favorite people. So she submitted multiple. And the first is um, her story called A Battle in the Clouds. And just so you know, I I love, um, there's a great book uh, biography about her. And there's a couple, but there's this one. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, Former people who won the league badge, which is the award she got, are William Faulkner, mm-hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald, sure, E. E. Cummings, mm-hmm. um, and Edna St. Vincent Millay, and mm-hmm. also E. B. White. Again, sure. So she keeps good company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not too shabby. And the story was about her brother. So this is World War One, and he had enlisted in the army, and. This is a quote from the book. In one of his letters home, Robert told of the tragic death of a Canadian flying instructor who had been in combat in France. Rachel was so taken by his account of the bravery bravery of the aviator that she retold the story in her own words. And that's when she realized, you know, that's she got this award. And then she continued to write. And she continued to get published. And her mom was like, yes, we love this level of success for you. <laughs> and um, OG stage mom. And yeah, truly. But there is deep affection. It was also because she firmly believes in cultivating Rachel's mind. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really important to remember. So she's brilliant. She gets, um, she just grows up, you know, she has interesting family life. Her dad's not that present. And they start to struggle a bit financially, especially when, you know, the, the, um, great depression is starting to feel it's, you know, stuff. So mm-hmm. she goes to, yeah, she goes to high school, graduates top of her class. Then she goes hey. to w- what was at the time, Pennsylvania college for women. It's now Chatham university. Um, mm-hmm. And she was an English major because she really wanted to be a writer, but then she met this amazing scientist and um, I think her name was Skinker, which is, I'm sorry, kind of funny. Um, but she was, a brilliant scientist and Rachel was like, Oh my gosh, you're incredible. And she switched her major to biology in January of 1928. So she continued to be like part of the school newspaper and the literary stuff, but her love for nature started to show up in her understanding and care of biology. And she was always like one of those annoying people who was good at like every subject in school, you know? Right. Just could pick anything up. Yeah. And, but clearly just began thriving in biology while also writing. Um, That's, those are unexpected uh, companions. 
Yeah, but it it makes sense to her. And it's interesting because I think yeah. there's a she mentioned earlier in her life she writes uh she has this a correspondence with um someone later we'll talk very much about, but she mm. she writes about um how at the time basically like no one could have foreseen any combination of those two things of writing and science, but she knew she wanted to be a writer and she had this deep love and interest in science. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she, if she could one day combine them, it seemed like she would want to, um, but no mm-hmm. one really foresaw that foreshadowing. Um, so dun, dun, dun. then in 1928, mm-hmm. she was admitted to graduate standing at where Johns Hopkins University. Hey now. Hey I know now. somebody who went there. Yeah. It's more. It's pretty cool. For the, for, it was for me. The listener who doesn't know. Um, yeah, it's more. <laughs> you re- can read about how she was like walking around campus and I was like, oh my God, same. And then she like went into Gilman <laughs> Hall, which is my favorite hall, which is now the home to the humanities. I think it was just like a general place back then. And then she was just like, had to go to the basement. I was like, man, that place had no windows. Yeah. Um, and you know, all the stuff. It was great. <laughs> Living the life. Uh, Living the life. And so she, she went to Hopkins starting in 1928 and she was there as a master's student and she tried to transfer and this was in her senior year at college. She was admitted as a graduate student to Hopkins. I think one of mm. two women in the sciences. And women were not cool. allowed to be undergraduates, I believe, at the time. I, I'm not quite clear on the graduate student gender restrictions, but undergrad, mm-hmm. women weren't, I think, allowed in until the 60s, late 60s, 70s. I, you'd have to assume it would apply to both, because how do you do? You grad would, but I undergrad? think there were multiple. There were other women who were um, there. That's interesting. I'm trying to find if they will ever. Yeah, women. Hold on. Let's look. Let's look. Let's look. Okay, nursing school, which was opened in 1889, accepted women and men. And Ira Remsen, who was um, one of the presidents, there's a hall named after him, I think. I'm trying to remember. Um, graduate schools were opened by him for women in 1907. And what's, But what's interesting is that the first woman to earn a PhD in mathematics was in 1882. And then they denied her degree. So she earned it. And they're like, <laughs> mm, no. And then in 1893, another woman became the first female PhD and the decision to admit women at the undergraduate level was not considered until the late 1960s and was eventually adopted in October of 69. Hmm. And since then, you dumb fools, we've always had an, pretty much always had an over 50% yeah. <laughs> part of the population. So huh. You tried, you failed. I find higher edu- education administrations the worst. Sure. That's just a blanket Probably. statement. Yeah. A lot of problems in the entire education system, yeah. frankly. <laughs> yeah. At all I, levels. I have so many bones to pick. It's wild. And they keep asking me for money. And I'm like, not if you don't do this stuff. <laughs> and also, uh, how dare you? You were wildly expensive. Thank you for the scholarship, but I still don't like you. I love that mail. Yeah. They're I like, don't you want to help? I'm like, no. I, I think of um John Mulaney's bit from um the special he did at Radio City. What's the bit? Or he's like, 
hi, it's college. Remember me? Um, <laughs> I want money. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. I already paid you $120,000. And there was an agreement that I would pay you $120,000 and you would teach me things. And that was the end of our arrangement. And now you want more money, but you haven't taught. What have you done for me lately? Nothing. <laughs> Just it's the same thing. Um, a wild system. It It is. Have you gotten texts? Oh, I got texts. And I I know that they're real people because I used to work in the admissions office. And oh, yeah. the office of whatever they called it, development or whatever, some shady name mm. they give it. Mm. Um, I knew people who worked in that as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was, I said, hi, I know you have to send this text to all alumnus or alumna alumni, um, but mm-hmm. um, I will never consider donating until you actually fund the arts programs the way you pretend to. So don't bother. <laughs> did you actually send that? <laughs> yes, I did. Speaking of badass broads. That's just, cool. Sometimes you get mad. Yeah. 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 They also tore fair. down. This is my. Oh, I'm getting off on a tangent. They tore down the art center, and they're Amazing. rebuilt. And it was not built that long ago. Was it ugly? Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Could it have okay. been designed more efficiently and better? Absolutely. Did it exist and have okay. a giant black box theater, like really big one, really cool big one? Yes, it did. Mm. Yes, it did. Mm. Um, they tore all of that down, and they're replacing it with a general student center that I do not believe has a theater. So now we're, there's, what? That was pretty much, there were other, quote, theatrical spaces on campus. One of which is the worst classroom ever. Mm. And it has the shittiest stage. It's not a stage. I won't deign to call it that. I'm you have to move the chocolate. By, it's ridiculous. By the attempt to have arts. Because I remember, and we've talked about this briefly before, but I remember when my older brother was touring john Hopkins, and they said they didn't have like a theater degree they don't they have a minor that's why i'm exactly. not a double major i have a, exactly. a double minor and i remember Which, at the time yeah. i was like okay well, well i don't want to go to a school yeah that doesn't yeah value well I, and I'm, that's I'm been just, like, interested in why mm-hmm. they don't just say like we are a mildly vocational school we're just not going to have arts like it's well, interesting, that's interesting. That they, like still pretend a little bit well i actually said because i went you to had a, you had a yeah you had a solid i went minor. to young alumni weekend mostly because i just wanted to see friends not because i mm-hmm. cared about the school at all um really i my favorite professor wasn't there during the weekend my other favorite professor was also not there so i'm like well what's the point anyway um sure so yeah, no, I was like, wait, so I'm sorry, you say that you're a liberal arts school. Mm. Liberal arts, what does that, oh, does that mean the general education amongst all liberal arts? Hmm. Yeah. Like, just interesting. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Wait, 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 hold on. But I'm sorry, are you, oh, you're not funding the, you're not funding the arts the same level. Interesting. So I think you should change what you call yourself. Like, I technically went to the School of Arts and Sciences. Mm-hmm. But let's be real frank. It was the School of Mostly sh- Social Science and Other Sciences. <laughs> like, history is a social science. It's also humanity. Whatever. 
degree, fine. That's great. It's a combo of things. It can be anything. You know what they added on campus? They added a minor Mm -hmm. in medicine, science, and the humanities for the doctors to get their, for the pre-meds and the other scientists to get their humanities credits. But I had Mm -hmm. to take a civil engineering class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Who knows at this point? But yeah, so basically they tore down the entire art center and they're like, well, this is fine. Um, You'll just go to the theater department. Guess what the theater department is? The theater department is in literally a barn and upstairs in the barn is a small theater. Now, is it lovely? Yes. Is there air conditioning? Of course not. If anyone knows Baltimore, you know it's hell in the summer and in the spring and in the early fall. So yeah, there's a theater department. In order to be a theater minor, you pretty much take the exact same number of credits and do the exact same amount of work that you would do to be a major. They just don't call it that. Why? You'd have to ask Ronald Daniels. Please write into him. I have a lot of questions about his leadership anyway. Wow. This is a big episode. Sorry, guys. I I think Rachel Carson, I think Rachel Carson would so be on my side because she's the perfect (laughs) example of why you have a liberal arts education. Sorry, I'm slapping my Mm. hands for emphasis. She is the perfect example. This is a woman, a person who is interested in multiple disciplines. And she goes to a university Mm. that claims to have all of that. And they did. What did she have to focus as a graduate student more on one? Sure. Were the resources there to look at the others? Yes. Hmm. That's why it's important. Because I Mm -hmm. met one of my best friends in college doing a musical and he's a chemical and biomolecular engineer. And that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. That's how it should be. Everyone should be able to express every aspect of themselves, right? That's what college is Mm -hmm. supposed to be about. Exploration and growth and learning. And that is not specific Mm -hmm. to certain disciplines. Hopkins and other institutions like you. There you go. And it's hard because, like, the level of education – well, the level of education is really good. So, like, what you doing? Like, I'm really lucky. I was taught by some really incredible people, literally Mm -hmm. incredible people. Like, I am incredulous that they taught me that kind of thing. Yeah. And that they weren't valued the same as, like, sure, did that one astrologist or astronomer have a Nobel Prize? Yes, he does. Fine. Is he very nice? Sure. Yes. He's fine. But, you know, Gabby Spiegel deserves the world. As far as I'm concerned. I love her very much. Also, her son works for Gloria Allred as an attorney. Also, her daughter, Alex Spiegel, works for NPR. She has a Pulitzer. Cool family. Anyway. So Hopkins is an interesting place. (laughs) But she goes there. So, sorry. Sideline aside. Yes. Yeah, so she gets into Hopkins in her senior year of college, but because of some financial stuff that's happening with her family, she stays and completes her year, her last year at the Pennsylvania College for Women. She graduates magnum cum laude in 1929. Hey. Damn. Mm-hmm. And then she works at the Marine Biological Laboratory. I believe it's at Hop. And then, um, or no, it's a, sorry, it's a private institution, but it's associate with other institutions. And then she actually starts going in. She goes in for a master's in zoology. Incredible. Or zoology? Z-O-O-L-O-G-Y. Know the word. Never heard it out loud. I've, I've always, in my brain, I've always said zoology. I think Is it's there zoology. Like a, 
Is there an IPA somewhere out there? <laughs> well, I see the Greek term. That's not very helpful. Zoology is the scientific study of hang animals. On, hang it's- on. Mm-hmm. You, you ever done that thing where Google says it out loud for you? Google says zoology. But how is it spelled? Z-O-O-L-O-G-Y. And they say zoology. Mm-hmm. Then it would be zoology. Because the two O's they make They say the zoo. Listen. Okay. The little AI guy just said it for me. I don't know what to tell you. I don't trust AI yet. <laughs> Not enough research. That's fair. And also people are like so willing to accept it as like a authority. And I'm like, no, I'm good. The AI topic is a massive road we could go down, especially with the SAG strike. But yes. Yo. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> fine. We'll switch to zoology. So it's the scientific study of animals. Its studies include the structure, embryology, classification, habits, and distribution of all animals, both living and extinct, and how they interact with their ecosystems. And it's one of the primary branches of biology. And so she starts there with zoology and genetics. She, after her first graduate year, so she's applying for scholarships for college, for everything else. And her, her family is doing a lot to try and make it possible for her to go to school. And they're selling plots of land and, you know, they're really trying, but it's, it's difficult. So she becomes a part-time student her second year and she starts working in Raymond Pearl's laboratory and she starts finally being able to find her dissertation topic and it's on embryonic development of the prone pronephros in fish pronephros sure there's going to be a lot of stuff that i'm like sure and she finally is able to earn her degree her master's degree in zoology in june of 1932 and immediately starts along the path for her doctorate but in 1934 her family's financial situation is pretty dire. So she ends up leaving and starts trying to become a teacher. And then unfortunately the next year her father dies and she has to start caring for her mom and her Mm -hmm. sister. And I think her sister's two kids at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a lot. So she starts working with the U S bureau of fisheries and she writes radio copy so she's kind of getting both and then she ends up writing something called romance under the waters and it's the series Mm -hmm. of programs focused on aquatic life and it's supposed to help get the public interested in in the bureau of fisheries and also fish and stuff and then she starts writing articles on marine life and the chesapeake bay is an incredible area for marine study i mean it's really wild so she starts um submitting more stories and series of stuff and based on her research and cause she is a biologist and then her supervisor is like, Hey, I want you to write the intro to a brochure about us. And then he makes her full time. Mm. So she sits for the civil service exam and outscores all other applicants because of course, because of course, and then she becomes the second woman hired by the Bureau of Fisheries for a full-time professional position. And she's a junior aquatic biologist. So she starts, yeah, she starts analyzing and reporting on field data, fish populations. She writes literature and publications for the public. Um, She does, she consults with other marine biologists and she starts reading, like writing pretty regularly for the Baltimore Sun and for other newspapers. Unfortunately, in 1937, her older sister, Marion, passes away. And so Rachel is now the sole breadwinner for her mom, her two nieces, and her 
ridiculous older brother Robert um and his I think he has a son as well yeah so then she starts writing in July of 1937 and an essay called The World of Waters. And she'd originally written written it for the US Bureau of Fisheries, but her supervisor was like, oh my God, this is so good. We can't publish it. <laughs> like it's, it's so good. good. It's so publish. vivid. It's this narrative, you know, she kind of writes along about like what it is to be on the seafloor. And so it's I mean it's really incredible. It's this like it talks about how the organism interacts with the sea and then from the organism's perspective, like how it operates and, and then, you know, yeah. So it follows their migration habits over the span of a year. And it's, it's just incredible. I mean, she will read from her writing, um, but it's just like, so she said that her goal of using poetic prose and personifying sea life was to quote, make the sea and its life as vivid a reality for those who may read the book as it had become for me during, become for me mm. during the past decade. So she wanted to get, yeah, she wanted to make it this incredible, engaging story about struggle and survival. And yeah, it's very, very compelling and interesting and very poetic. It's really beautiful. So that essay became Under the Sea Wind, which was her first book that was published um, mm-hmm. because it was published by the Atlantic Monthly. They loved it. Simon and Schuster were like, hey, can you make a book? And she does. So in 1941, it works. It doesn't sell that well, but it will end up selling later because she ends up writing more. We'll get mm-hmm. into that. So she mm-hmm. starts, continues to write articles. I mean, she's prolific. She's then she tries to leave the Bureau, which at this point is now the United States Fish and Wildlife Service in 1945. But because of the war and the fact that money for science was being sent to this little thing in New Mexico that's been circling our collective consciousness lately, the Manhattan Project. Hmm. Um, so she's not really able to leave. Um, what's interesting is around mid 1945, she encounters a new pesticide called DDT and it's lauded as the quote insect bomb. And that's because that's after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They love all of that stuff. And they already launched it, but they were starting to test it later. And she started getting really interested in it, but she wasn't able to get any traction on it. No one wanted to publish it. And so she was like, fine. She, at this point, has a small staff she's overseeing. And she becomes the chief editor of publications at the Fish and Wildlife Service in 1949. Very cool. She then starts to become, has to deal with more administrative stuff. And she's like, ugh, I don't want to. And then she starts working on material for a second book and starts to transition into being a full-time writer. So Oxford University Press was like, she wants to write a book about the life history of the ocean, basically. And it becomes a book called The Sea Around Us. And they loved it. And she was able to start publishing chapters, almost like serializations of her books. Mm -hmm. And um, it gets people interested in it. So in the Yale Review, a later chapter of the book called The Birth of an Island won the George Westinghouse Science Writing Prize 
which is wild. Mm. This is before the book is published. Nine mm-hmm. chapters were serialized in The New Yorker beginning in June of 1951. And it was published the next month by the um, Oxford University Press. It remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks. Wow. It was abridged by Reader's Digest. It won the 1952 National Book Award for Nonfiction and the John Burroughs wow. Medal. And she got two honorary doctorates. Oh my gosh. And Under the Sea Wind was republished and then became a bestseller. So then she mm-hmm. was like, thank God I can quit. So in 1952, she quit her job. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yes. She's like, I'm done. So now people want to hear her speak. So she does speaking engagement. She gets all this fan mail and, you know, there's someone okay, options celebrity. the rights. Sorry. I said, okay, celebrity. I know. She's like a legit celeb. Yeah. Yeah. And she, uh, film rights are optioned based on the sea around us. And uh, she thought, weirdly, in this contract that she had uh, secured the rights to um, say no to the scripts. And she had a right to review, but she didn't realize she didn't have a say no. And um, she was really unhappy (laughs) with the final version of the script. Said it was scientifically embarrassing and described it as a cross between a believe it or not and a breezy travelogue. And... Mm. uh, he went forward with the script and it won the 1953 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. And she was so mad that she never sold film rights to any of her books ever again. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> fair, though. Honestly. Film industry for the win. Yeah, fair. So, very importantly, in 1953, she goes to summer in Southport Island, Maine. And a really interesting couple who are her neighbors, they write her a letter, uh, Dorothy Freeman. And she mm. writes a letter because she's like, oh my God, Rachel Carson's coming to live in our neighborhood for a bit. So she's super excited because Rachel at this point is quite famous. Mm. And um, she writes a letter saying like, welcome to the area. If you'd love to, you know, I'd love to meet you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is where that song um, and historians would call them best friends comes into play (laughs) okay amazing you know what i mean and they were roommates yeah 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 best friends colleagues correspondents just two women who loved hanging out who wrote some really beautiful romantic prose to each other as friends do as friends do i mean Mm -hmm. i do tell you i love you and believe in you this is a little different though (laughs) um friend is a friend is a friend indeed indeed (laughs) So, okay. when she okay. writes Cute. a Love. meeting, Miss Freeman, it pretty quickly they become very devoted to each other. Dorothy is married to uh, Stanley Freeman. I believe he's a scientist as well. He's a really interesting guy. And they mm. all get along. No one's mad. Everyone's fine. Okay. Feels like it's about to change. No, it's not. Totally okay, fine. So, Stanley's okay. like, yeah, I love this. They were married for 29 years. And wow. he, he's like, yeah, my wife's got this like new person in her life. Totally great. Okay. So they start, they exchange over 900 letters. Oh my goodness. Okay. Sure. Over the next Casual. like approximately one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty
12 years. Very casual. 11 or 12 years. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I can't do math. It's not what we were born that. for. No, I wasn't. I'm not Rachel. I'm not Rachel. <laughs> and that's so, okay. They, Linda Lear, who's the um, biographer of Rachel that I read this, I read the book about her. And Mm -hmm. she says that the women admitted a conscious desire to make up for all the years of sharing and knowledge that they had missed in each other's lives. They become interested in observing sea life and creatures. And they're so, Dorothy's brilliant. Her husband's brilliant. They're just really interesting people. And so they're constantly like getting to know each other and, and they're exploring and writing and you know, all of the above. And mm-hmm. um, Rachel says to Dorothy, and this is a quote. And as you must know in your heart, there is such a simple answer for all the whys that are sprinkled through your letters. As why do I keep your letters? Why did I come to the head that last night? Why? Because I love you. Now I could go on and tell you some of the reasons why I do, but that would take quite a while. And I think the simple mm-hmm. fact covers everything. And then on Christmas Eve, Dorothy spent, sent a special note for Rachel to put under her pillow and they would meet up for even a couple of hours if they could. Just sounds like a great friendship. It's so platonic. (laughs) Very casual, Um, very chill. They talk about, Rachel says to Dorothy, I can imagine no substitute for you in my life. (laughs) Oh, um, when they meet up at one point, Rachel greets Dorothy with a kiss, whispering, we didn't plan it this way, did we? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's. That's so wholesome. It's so. Yeah. They talk about themselves and their relationship and they don't really define it as anything, which is really interesting. So. She's aware, they're both aware that, like, it's kind of interesting. So Rachel's mom has still been a pretty large presence in her life. That's a nice Stage mom. It. Stage mm-hmm. mom. And um, I'm not going to minimize that. And so both her mom and Stan were like, y'all spend a lot of time talking on the phone and writing to each other. And they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we do. And so okay. what they did is they write letters in two parts. They write a general letter that could be shared with their respective families without incurring any feelings of jealousy or exclusion and another for their private reading. And Rachel says, after all, our brand of craziness would be a little hard for anyone but us to understand. So they have readable letters and non-readable letters. Mm-hmm. Rachel Amazing. says, after all, neither of us has any longer a shadow of doubt about the devotion of each other. I guess I'm just trying to say that the suddenness and intensity of this feeling between us has obviously brought great changes into both of our lives. That as far as I'm concerned, it is exactly what I needed. That is all not only beautiful. It is exact. It is so exactly what I needed that it is all Mm. not only beautiful and wonderful, but truly constructive. But for you, I have sometimes feared I have too greatly disturbed the normal flow of your life, causing too much preoccupation with us and too much emotional Mm. upset. Mm. And Rachel's like, maybe we shouldn't, you know, we should calm down. And Rachel says, it's only because I do love you so deeply that I say this. If only we were where we could see each other very often, I'm sure there would be less tension about it and how wonderful it would be. Maybe someday things will be so that we can, Hmm. but you know, they're best friends. Yeah. Just like really devoted best friends. (laughs) One of them says, I know I need you terribly. As, as we all need a best friend, you know, Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that feels so clear. <laughs> that feels like it couldn't be clearer, actually. Could not be clearer. And <laughs> unless I'm they wrote so, like think... I'm in love with you in a romantic way, not a friend way, you know? <laughs> like Yeah. <laughs> that, that that'd be the only thing that would be clearer. I mean, truly, <laughs> truly. And but they they Dorothy and Rachel were very careful. Rachel was very conscious of the fact that after women who were writers died, their correspondence was often published. And she said, you need to destroy all Uh, of this. And it wasn't so much about the fact that she was in love with a woman as she just, it it was her private life. It had nothing to do with her life as a professional writer. Well, shouldn't that always be the case? Yeah. um, Yes. (laughs) Just to get on my little soapbox for a second. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how how do we have any of those words? Were they not because all successfully burned? There were some that Dorothy was going to keep and some that Rachel would keep. Mm. And I think some made it through. They literally, I think Rachel had her put stuff in a strong box. Yeah. And, and that box was broken open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I think it's just, you know, Rachel is quite an incredible woman and writer. So I think they were just like, don't get rid of her writings. Um, I'm not entirely sure actually how it escapes. They did destroy hundreds of letters. Hundreds. Okay. So. Well, then maybe one of those said, (laughs) not in a friend way. Yeah, I think so. You never know. (laughs) I'm assuming the most incriminating ones are the ones that are gone. Most likely, yes. But, like, damn, they must have been explicit. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't even read some of the stuff that I was like, interesting. Um, but it's it's so clearly, these are women in their middle years. I think mm-hmm. Dorothy's nine years older than her. Dorothy has a, you know, a, I think she has a son. Well, she has a kid who's an adult. Mm-hmm. Just a full family, yeah. Yeah, but they find this unbelievable companionship and love and mm-hmm. it's not up to us to define it they didn't mm-hmm. not our problem mm-hmm. not our business but i think it's really wonderful to see that rachel had this type of devotion in her life from someone who mm. wasn't her mother <laughs> you know yeah she fair. again continued to kind of live that solitary existence and it's really interesting to see her flourish i mean truly mm-hmm. um after meeting dorothy Hmm. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful to see. So in 1955, Rachel writes The Edge of the Sea, which is like the final of that trilogy. Mm -hmm. And it was published very well. She worked on random other projects and she wanted to talk about evolution, but was like, "Eh, I don't know. And then she became really interested in conservation And yeah, it's very interesting. So unfortunately, one of her nieces died at 31 and her niece had a son Mm. named Roger and Rachel basically adopted him. And Mm. she moved back to where her family was now living in Maryland to care for him and, you know, started studying more of that DDT 
and um, specific environmental threats. And by late 1957, so later that year, she was following mm-hmm. the USDA's plan to eradicate fire ants, which was a very interesting plan. And what was it? Um, basically, they were like, we're going to poison the hell out of these ants. Sure. And then they didn't yeah, think about that's... anything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> Poisoning everything else. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. 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 Love. Yeah. Um, and so she starts working on what will become Silent Spring. And this mm. is, mm-hmm. again, this book is credited with launching the environmental movement. It is to say that would not necessarily be an understatement. The singular nature of this work and how it impacted not just policy, but public perception is wild. I mean, Al Gore is like, yeah, this changed my life. Like so many conservationists, people who are well known for this are like, yeah, this book started me wanting to like be, be an environmentalist. Like, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the other people. I mean, it's just wild. Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, it's... No, that's incredible. It's really an incredible work. And so Rachel starts noticing and following the research she's seeing that a lot of synthetic pesticides have been developed through like science of world war ii and Mm -hmm. they started seeing that ddt and other pesticides mixed with fuel oil were being sprayed on private land to eradicate something called the gypsy moth which is now thankfully changed the to the spongy moth and on long island landowners file a lawsuit and they're like hey this is not great. And the Supreme Court mm-hmm. was like, mm, no. Um, but they granted the petitioners the right to gain injunctions against potential environmental damage in the future. And this mm. is what let, although I believe that's since basically been gutted. Thanks, y'all. Um, and so the the Audubon Naturalist Society, Audubon is named after um, a very famous, I'm going to call him a slaver. He was when he sucks. Um, but it's named after John James Audubon, who wrote and published as an ornithologist and a naturalist, a beautiful, I I have to call it that, a absolutely beautiful 
work. Um, it's very famous. It's very like in the book collecting community, the Audubon is a big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. you've Mm -hmm. probably seen pictures from it and like, it's, it's just an incredible work. And so the natural, the society is named after him. I think they've now kind of changed their name or at least are like, you know, the name refers to the book and not him. Right. Um, anyway, so Mm -hmm. they asked Rachel to work on making public what the government was doing with the spraying and the research that would it that would accompany it and so she starts researching it she by 1958 got a book deal with it but she was gonna write an article about it and then it became something that she was gonna write a lot it it clearly needed something larger and so she found scientists who were documenting the physiological and environmental effects of pesticides because she knew a lot of governmental scientists. She was like, Hey, and they gave her a lot of confidential information. Um, and she found that people were either like, yeah, there's no issue with them. And people who were like, uh, yeah, there could be major issues and maybe we should look at biological pest controls instead of synthetic ones. And Mm. yeah. So at the same time, it all the research about thalidomide is coming out. Did you know? Did you do you know about thalidomide? Mm-mm. Thalidomide is a medication that was given to people. I forget why. Um, I can look it up, but it was given to people, and in pregnant women, it caused severe birth defects. Mm. And oh, this sounds it, familiar. I think I yeah, read about this in yeah. developmental psych class. Yeah. Yes. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So that's um. Yeah, thalidomide. So this is coming out around the same time. And so the, yeah. Basically, people are starting to allow for the possibility that, like, man-made shit is ruining things. And we see more and more instances of various pesticides and insecticides necessitating recalls of various products there was quote the great cranberry scandal um of like 1959 <laughs> <Tell me> more <laughs> crops what of cranberries were found to cranberry con- yeah so crops of cranberries in the u.s were found to contain high levels of amniotriazole which causes okay. cancer in lab rats and the Jeez. sale of all cranberry oh. products were halted she wow. went to the FDA hearings and came away because the chemical industry representatives were like, no, everything's fine. Of course. yeah. And then she wondered about the possible financial inducements behind certain pesticide programs mm-hmm. at the National Institute of Health. She came into contact with researchers and they were all part of what would then become the National Cancer Institute. And he was saying, mm-hmm. no, these pesticides are carcinogens. And she starts working with a lot of these um, researchers and finds more evidence of toxicity but not only through that she sees pesticide exposure human Mm -hmm. sickness ecological um the ecological damage in all of Mm -hmm. it is starting to i mean basically destroy the planet and so she Mm. i'm gonna now read from bits of it just because i think it's it's one of the most incredible books like the writing is so incredible but also Mm -hmm. the what she's saying is wild and it's upsetting. And also, by the way, a lot of these chemicals are still used and, or because they were used so persistently for as long as they were, we'll, we will never get rid of them in our bodies. Right. You were Amazing. born with it. It reach, it breaches the placental uh, barrier. Amazing. 
So one of her in um one of her uh what you call it? What do you call it? I don't know. Forward. No. Quote. You know when they have quotes at the beginning of a book? Oh, I actually don't know what that is. Well, one of those. The, the, is like, by the little written part is the foreword, but yeah, yeah, yeah. probably not the quotes. Yeah. yeah. So Albert Schweitzer said, man can hardly even recognize the devils of his own creation. And that was put right in the front. Uh, yeah, I mean, true. Fair. So she starts saying, this is, I believe, in the intro. She goes, these sprays, dusts, and aerosols are now applied almost universally to farms, gardens, forests, and homes. Non-selective chemicals that have the power to kill every insect, the good and the bad. To still the song of birds and the leaping of fish in the streams. To coat the leaves with a, de- a deadly film and to linger on in soil. All this, through the intend- though the intended target may be only a few weeds or insects. Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down a barrage of poisons on the surface of earth without making it unfit for all life? They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. Mm. I feel like it could Later, have she goes on stronger name. Yeah. Killer oh. sides or something. <laughs> I mean, truly. She's a scientist. Don't forget. Mm. So then she says, if the bill of rights contains no guarantee that a citizen shall be secure against lethal poisons distributed either by private individuals or by public officials, it is surely Mm -hmm. because our forefathers, despite their considerable wisdom and foresight, could conceive of no such problem. And to that, I would like it tattooed on my forehead. (laughs) And just just for various reasons. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Would look sick. (laughs) Yeah. So basically the book has it's it's quite. I think it's about 300 pages. It's a wonderful read. I genuinely recommend it. It's deeply upsetting, but so evocative. It's it's a hard one because you're like, mm. ooh, we're all dying. And now and I get it. And still true. It's always still frustrating true. when there are early yeah. whistleblowers and you see 60. how, if yeah. they'd been listened to, mm. things could have been different. Don't worry. I want you to start thinking about what that you think that the um, chemical industry might have been insulting her with. Okay. So mm. she said there is still a lot of the book talks about how, well, we don't know what the effects are going to be. We know what they've mm-hmm. already been. We don't know what it's going to be in 50 years, 60 years, 100 years, 2000 right, years. We right, don't know. Right. Right. You can't know. And we already know what it's been doing. And we already know unintended con- consequences. Right. So she says, there is still very limited awareness of the nature of the threat. This is an area of specialists, each of whom sees his own problem and is unaware of or intolerant of the large frame into which it fits. It is also an era dominated by industry in which the right to make a dollar at whatever cost is seldom challenged. When the public protests, confronted with some obvious evidence of damaging results of pesticide applications, it is fed little tranquilizing pills of half-truths. We urgently need an end to these false assurances, to the sugarcoating of unpalatable facts. It is the Mm -hmm. public that is being asked to assume the risks that the insect controllers calculate. The public must decide whether it wishes to continue on the present road, and it can only do so when in full possession of the facts. In the words of Jean Ronstan, the obligation to endure gives us the right to know. 
Hmm. Oh, that's a good sentence. So good. So good. So she talks about. I know. Well, it is. All of these are. Oh, no. Yes, Chloe. They (laughs) are. Walked right into that one. You did. Walked right into that one. (laughs) So did you know that arsenic is like in all of these things? Why wouldn't it be? And DDT and chemicals who have names I can't even be bothered to try to pronounce. Sure. (laughs) And it all started because people were curious. And they're like, what if we took inorganic chemistry? Like, what if we took this and replaced one of the carbon atoms with, like, this? And they're like, interesting. It kills things. Let's use it indiscriminately. Um, And DDT was used... And there are pictures of this we will post mm. in these weird hand spray canisters as a de-louser. Oh. So there was a CBS special that was done basically about the right of um, the silent spring. Excuse me. And in it, you see the liberation of the island of Sicily by the allied troops. And they... It's... I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I feel sick to my stomach watching it. They're just coating everyone in this powder to get rid of the lice that's terrifying it's yeah yeah so and they survived (laughs) oh i don't know this was a funny bit i wanted to quote it because i thought it was hilarious and i love her Mm -hmm. she says arsenic is a highly toxic mineral occurring widely in association with the ores of various metals and in very small amounts in volcanoes in the sea and in spring water its relations to man are varied and historic. Since many of its compounds are tasteless, it has been a favorite agent of homicide from long before the time of the Borgias to the present. Made me laugh. Yeah. Famously. Um, famously. It's in like every play. Every play. Um, Put a little arsenic in there. And you know what they were doing? Throwing it into everything. Great. So then she says, I once read an extraordinary statement of a weed killer's philosophy. And this was from the report that I believe was submitted from shockingly a pesticide manufacturer like their report about how nothing was wrong Mm. she says i once read an extraordinary statement of a weed killer's philosophy the author defended the killing of good plants quote simply because they are in bad company end quote those who complain about killing wide flowers wildflowers along roadsides reminded him he said of anti-vivisectionists to whom, if one were to judge by their actions, the life of a stray dog is more sacred than the lives of children. To the author of this paper, many of us would be unquestionably suspect, convicted of some deep perversion of character because we prefer the sight of the vetch and the clover and the wood lily and all their delicate and transient beauty to that of roadsides scorched as if by fire, the shrubs brown and brittle, the bracken that was once lifted high, its proud lacework now withered and drooping. We would seem deplorably um, wary in that we can tolerate the sight of such weeds, that we do not rejoice in their eradication, that we are not filled with exultation that man has once more triumphed over miscreant nature. Sure. Get them. Yeah. A knife. She's like the Taylor Swift of environmental writing. Whoa. (laughs) And I think Taylor and Rachel would be fine with that strong statement well she comes at him and they deserve it yeah love and she's not mincing words 
She'll give you mm-hmm. a narrative. She's not mincing it. Mm-hmm. It's that uh Taylor Swift era mm. with the with the where she was wearing black a lot. Her um, reputation. Era. Thank you. Yeah, the one with the Taylor can't come to the phone. Oh God, it's good. It gives that energy. It does, and she deserves to give it. Another bit Preach. she says is. As man proceeds towards his announced goal of the conquest of nature, he has written a depressing record of destruction, directed not only against the earth he inhabits, but against the life that shares it with him. Under the philosophy that now seems to guide our destinies, nothing must get in the way of a man with the spray gun. The incidental victims of his crusade against insects count as nothing. Hmm. Later in the book, she says, in each of these situations, and this is after she's talked about dumping chemicals into rivers and killing so many freaking things because it goes into the planktons that the fish eat, then the fish are eaten by the birds, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. the water is drunk after being, quote, filtered, like it's, and all the birds are dying, and it's horrific deaths. I mean, you're, it's, oh my <sighs> God. So she says, in each of these situations, one turns away to ponder the question. Who has made the decision that sets in motion these chains of poisonings? This ever-widening wave of death that spreads out like ripples when a pebble is dropped into a still pond? Who has placed in one pan of scales the leaves that might have been eaten by the beetles, and in the other the pitiful heaps of many-hued feathers? The lifeless, lifeless remains of the birds that fell before the unselective bludgeon of incidental poisons. Or insecticidal. I can't read. Mm -hmm. Who has decided? Who has the right to decide for the countless legions of people who were not consulted that the supreme value is a world without insects, even though it could also be a sterile world, untraced by the curving wing of a bird in flight? The decision is that of the authoritarian temporarily entrusted with power. He has made it during a moment of inattention by millions to whom the beauty and the ordered world of nature still have a meaning that is deep and imperative. Hmm. So she continues in the book to talk about the quote research that's been done by other people. And basically it's the, well, we, uh, there's nothing wrong. And they're like, but what about this? That, nothing to do with us. No, <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. Right. It wasn't me. No, mom, it was him. It's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was. She him. talks. Yeah. Oh my God, of course it was. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so mad. <laughs> so she says then, in effect then, to establish tolerances is to authorize contamination of public food supplies with poisonous chemicals in order that the farmer and the processor may enjoy the benefit of cheaper production. So this is what she's talking about, then the responsibility of the taxpayer. We are paying for all of this. And she's going to get into it. She says, then to penalize the consumer by taxing him to maintain a policing agency to make certain that he shall not get a lethal dose. But to do the policing job properly would cost money beyond any legislator's courage to appropriate, given the present Mm -hmm. volume and toxicity of agricultural chemicals. So in the end, the luckless consumer pays his taxes but gets his poisons regardless. Ay, ay, ay. So what had been happening was they're like, well, we, someone needs to look it over. And they're like, great. How about the FDA? Do you know what else the FDA was doing? Do you want to know? Tell Do you want to know what else they were doing, Chloe? Tell me. Authorizing the use of those chemicals. 
I'm sure. Money? Money. Money. But also, the same organization... And Rachel's like, hi, has anyone thought that this could be a conflict of interest? Has anyone considered it? Please. Anyone. And because of that, they, like, the Department of, like, the environment was kind of established. Like, she basically did that. I'm not, I'm not just attributing that to her. Her movement and other people did that. That's extremely cool. It's wild. She's amazing and I love her. (laughs) So, toward the end of the book, she says, for each of us, and what she's about to list are examples that she's given, um... Of different environmental disasters. And this was happening in 1964. This was after only like. At most. 40 years of this. Use. Mm-hmm. And not and it was really only 10 years of intense use. 10 or 20 years I guess. I can't do math. Okay. She says mm-hmm. for each of us. As for the robin in Michigan. Or the salmon in Miramichi. This is the problem of ecology. Of interrelationships. Of interdependence. We poison the caddis flies in a stream and the salmon runs dwindle and die. We poison the gnats in a lake and the poison travels from link to link of the food chain. And soon the birds of the lake margins become its victims. We spray our elms and the following springs are silent of robin song. Not because we sprayed the robins directly, but because the poison traveled step by step through the now familiar elm leaf earthworm robin cycle. These are matters of record, observable, part of the visible world around us. They reflect Mm -hmm. the web of life or death that scientists know as ecology. And then at the end, she says in a chapter called The Other Road. And this is where she talks about the fact that, you know, (laughs) what's been interesting is what research we have been able to do is that targeted pests, i.e. the the one you've been targeting, have developed remarkable resistance to the pesticides you've been throwing at them. Weird. Hmm. So there's a couple people who run a- a- organizations that are very anti, anti-DDT. So they're like pro-DDT. And they're like, well, what about malaria? Malaria is a monstrous disease. It's horrible. And they say you need DDT to, just, to kill malaria. But malaria programs, including the spraying of DDT, has not only ruined ecology and different ecosystems all over the world, specifically in third world nations, it -hmm. has also created a resistance among mosquitoes. Ew. Unacceptable. So indiscriminate overuse was counterproductive. It created insect resistance to the pesticides and it made them useless. So she says the world has heard much of the triumphant war against disease by controlling inset vectors of infection. However, it has heard little of the other side of the story, the defeats, the short-lived triumphs that now strongly support the alarming view that the insect enemy has actually been made stronger by our efforts. Even worse, we may have destroyed our very means of fighting. And what she's referring to is the fact that these pesticides kill indiscriminately, which means they killed everything, not just the insect that was bad they killed the good ones right right and those good ones what people didn't realize is that you could use them to destroy the bad ones so Ugh. i think something was destroying was it grapevines and there was like a specific worm or something but they did a study and found that marigolds can like when planted in the soil like poisoned those earthworms so they just mm-hmm. started planting marigolds in the soil and guess what it fixed it i'm sure 
and nothing died. And they actually safer for added everybody. pretty flowers. That's the type of thinking we should be doing here. There are all of these variation, variable things. She said, you know, you could sterilize a group of flies and then they go out and try to mate and they become really good at it. Why? Because they're not going to die easily, mm-hmm. but they're infertile. So it, it starts dying out. And it's true. That has happened. Like they have all, and yes, maybe the working to reconstitute what the soil is doesn't happen within five minutes, but the effects mm-hmm. of it last longer and are far more effective. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the book, she says, this is the last bit of the book. The current vogue for poisons has failed utterly to take into account those most fundamental considerations. As crude a weapon as the caveman's club, the chemical barrage has been hurled against the fabric of life. A fabric on the one hand, delicate and destructible. On the other, miraculously tough and resilient and capable of striking back in unexpected ways. These extraordinary capacities of life have been ignored by the practitioners of chemical control who have brought to their tasks no, quote, high-minded orientation, no humility before the vast forces with which they tamper. The control of nature is a phrase conceived in arrogance, born of the Neanderthal age of biology and philosophy, when it was supposed that nature exists for the convenience of man. The concepts and practices of applied entomology, for the most part, date from that stone age of science. It is our alarming misfortune that so primitive a science has armed itself with the most modern and terrible weapons, and in turning them against the insect, it has also turned them against the earth. So pretty quickly... The, um, she assumed that she'd be sued for libel. She mm-hmm. assumed that all this would be happening. But what I've not told you because she wouldn't have wanted it, but I'm going to tell you, is that the whole time Rachel herself has developed cancer. <gasps> no. And she's been undergoing radiation. No. And she doesn't have all of the energy that she should have. I mean, it's spreading, it's bad. And so, but she doesn't want anyone to know because she doesn't want anyone to say, oh, you're just some embittered woman who is taking this personally because you have cancer and you think someone else caused it. Right. Man. Yeah. But what's interesting is that what she did with her eight, her book agent, who was a really cool woman. Um, her name was mm. Marie Riddell um, or Mary Marie. And she mm-hmm. was actually the first, she pu- first published um martin luther king's books like she was the first one to ever do that she was cool she was also a member of mensa she's wild anyway hey hey yo smart ladies so they said you know what we're gonna do we are gonna get all the scientists who have actual expertise on this to read the book and support it so she attended the white house conference on conservation in may of 1962 um Houghton Mifflin, who was her publisher at the time, distributed proof copies to many of the delegates. And mm-hmm. the book itself was going to be serialized in The New Yorker. She sent a proof copy to the Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. Have you ever heard of William Douglas? Justice Douglas? I think so. He's freaking wild. He was the guy who... So there was a, a very famous case called Sierra Club v. Morton. And mm. in his... He lost... But in his dissenting opinion, he argued that inanimate objects should have standing to sue in court. Uh huh. He said, "Inanimate like objects are sometimes inanimate. Yeah, are sometimes parties in litigation, 
A ship has a legal personality, a fiction found useful for maritime purposes. The corporation soul, a creature of ecclesiastical law, is an acceptable adversary and large, fortune, large fortunes ride on its cases. So it should be as respects valleys, alpine meadows, rivers, lakes, estuaries, beaches, ridges, groves of trees, swampland, or even air that feels the destructive pressures of modern technology and modern life. The river, for example, is the living symbol of all the life it sustains or nourishes. Fish, aquatic insects, water, ozels, oozels, I don't know that word, whatever, otter, fish, deer, elk, bear, and all other animals, including man, who are dependent on it or who enjoy the sight of it, its sound, or its life. The river as plaintiff speaks for the ecological unit of life that it is a part of. I he can't was tell a, if I agree or not. <laughs> I think no. it's a very interesting argument. I mean, I think it's really yeah. interesting. Yes. He was very instrumental in the granting of, um, uh, what is it? Griswold v. Connecticut. And Griswold is the one that allowed for the constitutional right to privacy, which established precedent for the uh, Loving v. Virginia, Roe v. Wade, you name it, all of those. And it, mm-hmm. the right to privacy in that case in Griswold forbidden constitutional bans on contraception because that's private. Great. So that's where all that comes from. So he wrote that. And he was also a supporter of gay rights from the beginning. Okay. And he, the court ruled that gays and lesbians were included in the list of psychopathic personalities. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was like, no, that's really stupid. He's an interesting dude. He also tried to strike down the death penalty. He tried to declare the Vietnam War unconstitutional. He went for okay. it. And I appreciate that about yeah, him. Yeah, sure. I don't necessarily yeah. agree with all of it. Mm-hmm. But I agree with some. A lot of it stands up today. A lot of it does. He's a weird dude. But I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Anyway, they became mm-hmm. like friends. And he ended up writing like a uh, forward to a, a version of the book, I think, or at least like a big, like you should read this book. I love her. She's amazing. You know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he actually gave her some of the data on herbicides, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. So the New Yorker starts publishing it in June 16th of 1962. And the chemical industry is like, no, um, to be specific. And it was the book of the month for October and it was positively depicted in the New York Times. And again, thalidomide just happened. And the FDA is like, yeah, no, we're not going to sell that here. And mm-hmm. so, of course, DuPont, who was a main manufacturer of DDT and 2,4-D and Vels- Velsicle, who also did Chlordane and Heptachlor, were like, um, you're wrong and I'm, I want you to cancel this book. And they're like, yeah, no, we're good. And, um, cause it went through so much vetting for four years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so quote, according to this weird ass dude who, if you watch, there's a, a famous CBS documentary that came out, um, at the time. And he says, if you, we were to follow the teachings of Miss Carson, we would return to the dark ages and the insects and diseases and vermin would once again inherit the earth. That's not what was happening back then anyway, you dumb, dumb man. <laughs> and 
In a letter to former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, the former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture concluded that because she was that because she was unmarried, despite being physically attractive, she was probably a communist. My goodness. So, you know, when you have to rely on an ad hominem attack, mm-hmm. you're not doing too well. Sure. Rachel's very ill. She is still not letting it, like, kind of get to her. She is trying very hard to continue um, along the way. And what's interesting is all these people are like, she said ban pesticides. And in the book, she never says that. She just says, please be very careful about how you do it. And when you do it so that there's not resistance, make sure you're doing it to a point where it's not affecting every river and every unborn anything. (laughs) Right. Fair enough. (laughs) Use it and, and don't, and make sure the people who work in your chemical factories who are all dying and collapsing and having convulsions and being permanently disabled and horrible things are happening to them. Could you just like not do that? Like that's, she's not saying get rid of it all. There are uses. There was a reason it was developed. She just says, think about how you're using Mm -hmm. it, when you're using it and how many times you're using it. So because of that, everyone's like, no, she seems kind of reasonable, but all the chemical people are like, she's this crazy hysterical woman. And she's an alarmist and she's trying to get you mad. And so Mm -hmm. the CBS report, which I recommend you all watch and hopefully we'll be able to post clips of because it's so old. I don't think there's any copyright issues, although I could look that up. Um, I'm not the most worried about that. (laughs) So Dr. White Stevens, who was one of the ones who was like, she just must be an unmarried lady. Um, Mm -hmm. He's in this white lab coat and he looks insane. And she's just sitting there looking very like contemplative, like, and she reads from bits of her book and, and the critics were all expecting to see this crazy woman. And she's just sitting there in this beautiful suit. Her hair is perfectly coiffed. Like, you know, great. And 10 to 15 million people watched it. And the program itself spurred a congressional review of pesticide dangers. And they released a report by the President's Science Advisory Committee because JFK had to. And within mm-hmm. a year of that, basically, she wasn't really able, no one really attacked her personally at that point. They were like, well, I guess we can't. We're just going to say that you're lying and it's wrong and the data's wrong. Right. So she's asked to testify multiple times. At this point, she's barely able to sit and stand. Mm. Um, she's very ill. Um, and, but in early 1963, she testified before the Science Advisory Committee and before mm-hmm. a, US, um, a U.S. Senate subcommittee to make policy recommendations, she still was trying to speak at various places. She received a dinners that were held in her honor. She got the Audubon Medal, the mm-hmm. Callum Geographical Medal. She got, was inducted into the American Academy of Let's and Letters and Art, Arts and Letters. Excuse me. She was on the Today Show, but because she didn't really watch TV, she's like, I don't really know what that is. Fine, I'll go, mm-hmm. um, which I love. In the meantime, she's trying to see Dorothy and Dorothy's trying to travel to see her as much as possible. She's having good and bad days, but mostly they're bad and she's making it work. And all the while, she's not admitting that she has cancer. She's not saying anything like that because she doesn't want them to use that against her. Um, Even though we can only imagine that because she spent so much of her life out in the field researching toxic things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting to me. So no, I don't know, but yeah. No. She says in a letter to Dorothy, she places it in a box and she says, for Dorothy Freeman to read after my death. 
I have been coming to the realization that suddenly there might be no chance to speak to you again, and it seems I must leave a word of goodbye. <sighs> but last night, the pains were bad and came so often that I was frightened. No, that isn't quite the word, but I realized there might come a time when I wouldn't rouse from sleep in time to reach for the pills. And it seemed it might be a little easier for you if there were some message. I think that you must have no regrets in my behalf. I have had a rich life full of rewards and satisfactions that come to few. And if it must end now, I can feel that I've achieved most of what I wish to do. That wouldn't have been true two years ago when I first realized my time was short. And I am so grateful to have had my ex this extra time. My regrets, darling, are for your sadness, leaving Roger when I so wanted to see him through to manhood. For dear Jeffy, her cat, whose life is linked to mine. What I want to write is of the joy and fun and gladness we have shared, for those are the things I want you to remember. I want to live on in your memories of happiness. Gosh, so she says, depressing. yeah, the main thing I want to say, dear, is that we are not going to get bogged down in unhappiness about all this. We are going to be happy and go on enjoying all the lovely things that give life meaning. Sunrise and mm -hmm. sunset, moonlight on the bay, music and good books, the song of thrushes and the wild cries of geese passing over. So let's think and live happily enjoying whatever time there is. And so they do see each other a couple more times, but because of the severity of her cancer and the treatment, she develops a respiratory virus in January of 1964. She'd had severe anemia and angina. I mean, she was in just bad shape. And so unfortunately the cancer reached her liver and on April 14th of 1964, she died of a heart attack in Silver Spring, Maryland. Mm. And she had in those final months made provisions for the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, which was mm -hmm. brand new at the time. It's at Yale to get her manuscripts and papers. And so her literary executor, so Marie Rodell, who was her mm -hmm. agent and good friend, she spent nearly two years organizing and cataloging her papers and correspondence. And she sent all the letters to the senders so that the correspondent would be, would approve it before she submitted it. Mm -hmm. And her books have remained in print since the first time they were published. She created and it, you know, just led to the movement of deep ecology, grassroots environmental movements. She was given so much crap and the formation of the Environmental Defense Fund is what started, and that happened in 1967, so three years after she passed, and that started to help citizens bring lawsuits mm. against the government because they had a right to a clean environment. And they used a lot of Rachel's arguments against DDT and they succeeded in a phase out of DDT use in the U S except in quote emergency cases. So that's interesting. Nixon created the EPA in 1970. And what's interesting is then in 1972, there was a federal insecticide, fungicide, and rodenticide act, and that basically directly came from her. And then, of course, who comes in and starts ruining everything in the 1980s? Say it with me, Reagan. Um, 
Yay. He rolled back a lot of those environmental <laughs> policies. She's given the Presidential um, Medal of Freedom. She was on some postage stamps. She was in the Women's Hall of Fame. One of the University of Santa Cruz's colleges is named after her. There's a society mm. named after her. You can go visit some of her homes. There is a Pennsylvania Department of, of Environmental Protection that's named after her. Some elementary schools and middle schools and high schools and some research aquariums and a naval vessel. And she is, she has a couple of conservation areas named after her. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, she has given and left a truly remarkable legacy, not least of which because of what she showed in terms of like the dangers of unrigorous science, right? Of mm. accepting biased opinions. She had a great quote that I'm like obsessed with. She said, even if we charitably explain their denials as due to the short-sightedness of the specialist and the man with an interest, this does not mean we must accept them as qualified witnesses. <laughs> Throw them under the bus. Yeah. God, I love her. So because of her work, we are not entirely doomed. We're still partially doomed, but some of that happened while she was writing. Some of it is still mm -hmm. continuing. She, you know, yeah. but she also, I think, helped to foster this beautiful, great love of the environment. She created and helped to foster that idea that we have a right to a clean environment and it is our birthright to explore it as it should be. And, you know, I think we can attribute so much to her, obviously not all to her. She, she was inspired by many people too, but it also mm -hmm. shows, you know, that you can mix disciplines and good things can happen. Yeah, of course. Greater things, you know, yeah. It's well rounded, etc. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Rachel Carson, a true badass. You know she was Absolutely. only 56 when she died. Accomplished a lot in those 56 years, huh? Holy cannoli. <laughs> I'm obsessed. I really recommend everyone read her book. Thankfully her book is I don't know if everyone knows about the um you can go to the Internet Archive. It's a nonprofit, and they have a website called theopenlibrary.org, and you can, like, look up any book and pretty much read it. Ooh. Like, that's how I do a lot that's of That's a research. pro tip. Yeah. I don't so love cool. reading online. Yeah. But I don't Pages are love nice. leaving my house and spending money. Also necessarily. true. Yeah. So, yeah. Um. You can oh, read anything. In thank you for it's that. Basic. So yeah. her book's there. It's been published. There have been many editions of it. There's a book even very famously published after si Silent Spring. And it's called like The Legacy of Silent Spring or something. And it's it's like a very famous book in its own right. And it's about like what she did. Hmm. So I just think, you know, I recommend reading it. I didn't get into much of the detail regarding the science because... I don't know if I understood all of it. Fair enough. Yeah. And also. <laughs> it's a history uh, podcast. It's a history book. Not a science yeah. podcast. Yeah. And, and also because um, 
she does it so well. Like, if there was ever a person who could distill complicated scientific things into words that lay people like myself can understand, it's her. It's wild. Well, she made sense. me think I could understand Because she has a mastery organic. of language as well. Yes. But she made me think I could understand organic chemistry. Maybe you could. I, no, it's the reason I'm, I dropped out of pre-med. Yeah, One of that's the reasons. fair. That and also I'm so bad at math, I think I'd kill someone. I don't want to do that. <laughs> that's very generous of you. <laughs> no, I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable, too. I also did not pursue medicine <laughs> so rachel carson a badass broad writing a truly incredible book david attenborough was like yeah that changed everything that and origin of species by darwin it's silent That's spring wild. and origin of species by darwin and he's like yeah it's those two david attenborough and for some reason, I feel like I've heard of one significantly more than the other. Could one have been written by a man? Well, maybe that's what it is. And could the other have had a critic who said, quote, why a spinster with no children was so concerned about genetics, end quote. You're kidding. I would never joke about that. That was in the same letter that said, well, she was probably a communist. That was a letter from the former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture to former President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Someone wrote that and they weren't kidding. That's just ridiculous, honestly. So it could be that. I don't know. It's but probably that. We should also post the video of um, The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson, which was that CBS report. You can mm -hmm. hear her read from passages of her own book. Maybe we can post clips of that. Um, Very cool. And also just her like walking around in the forest. It's very satisfactory. Um, Into that as well. Yeah. But that's Rachel Carson. Just like Ugh. in her reputation era, <laughs> coming after the chemical companies. Yes. Making change. Absolutely love. We stan, I think. We stan. We stan. I also, um, I'm now so mad. Oh, yeah. Be forewarned. You read Silent Spring, you're going to get mad. You're going to be infuriated. But it will feel like I feel galvanized. Okay, there's something to that. So just go into it knowing that. Okay? I think if, yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair warning. Yeah. But it's such a beautiful read. It doesn't, you're not reading like this depressing science book. Like it is mm. depressing and it is a book about science, but that's not what it feels mm. like. It's a beautiful book. I mean, her prose mm. is incredible. So Rachel Carson, baby. Rachel Carson. The woman of the month. Indeed. Indeed. And now the bookend of the series where we attempt to say farewell. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for your support. Rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> and stay tuned <laughs> on our Instagram where we will post all the things we mentioned. Yeah. And fangirl some more yes. over the course of the month online. Yes. <laughs> we will. I just want to keep we posting will. like slam duck quotes of her just to like. Let's do that. I'm with a snake that. emoji, you know? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> also, she did a lot of research with snakes. Oh, okay. So, so there's be many ways. benefits. Anyway. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, love stay it. tuned for that. And we'll talk to you in a month. Thanks for listening. Farewell. 
Thank mm-hmm. you.